Hey, this is Jonathan. This is Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. And it's been forever. <laughs> we're we'll back. Yeah, we're back. We're back on the air. We're back. We'll see if we remember how to do this. Sorry for the delay, but life has nothing bad, just you went on vacation and my wife had shoulder, I can't say it, shoulder surgery. It's a hard one to say for me. Um, so she's been kind of recovering from that, doing well. And yeah, life just kind of got busy. Wrapping up an academic year. Yeah. Coming out of Easter pastorally. There were just several things, it seems like. And now we're almost into June. It's like, what just happened? But here we are. Here we are. It's good to see your face again. Well, <laughs> we don't really look. You know, we don't really look at these people. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good to have your ears. I was talking again. about you. Oh no, I see. No, no, you're talking about me. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since we've been together. Yeah, we did a post a post COVID nineteen hug today. It was very nice. It was so nice yeah. and lovely and. Yeah, there we go. So today we're going to talk about something that Jeremy and I do every week. That I don't. There are some things in your life that you do so consistently. I don't know that you think about them critically. And so today we're going to think critically about the thing that we lead our congregations in every week, and that is worship. Now, worship is a word that in evangelicalism has been hijacked by the music industry to essentially mean, you know, times of corporate singing, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you say worship in evangelicalism since kind of the late 90s, early 2000s rise of, what, you know, what people called like the worship music uh, or the rise of like the worship industry and worship arts and all these things, people think about this kind of element of production in worship. Yeah, and unfortunately, it, it does most often lend itself to just the singing parts of even even getting together. Yeah. And not not life, but it doesn't seem, once again, in the Bible, I always, you know, and probably you know exactly the, the text or the, the, the verses, the Romans 12, right? The Paul doesn't say when you sing, that's your spiritual act of worship. It's when our mind is transformed and renewed this is your spiritual worship, living sacrifice, that that's what, that all of life should be kind of worship. And so if we view all of life as worship, I think it should have some implications for what we do when we do actually get together as the people of God. That if, if all of, how do we celebrate all of life and all of the rest of the days of the week and not just the hour or hour and a half or whatever, however long your worship gathering is, how do we understand that um that maybe that's a culmination of a week that's already been lived in worship and now we're just doing it together with our brothers and sisters yeah but it's not a separation or i'm taking now a step out of life so that i can worship it is just a continuation but once again now we're doing it with our brothers and sisters in christ and so it takes on a different feeling maybe a different form a different um understanding but once again, how does that inform all of life and not just an hour a week? Sure. And so today we really are, we are, we're just talking about what we would term, you know, a worship service or the time of gathering of the people of God. I love the verse you lift up at, that's from the beginning of Romans chapter 12. I think that's a very important verse for understanding what worship is about. And to your point about 
not worship the hour of worship for the community or for the church not being discordant with the rest of our lives. One of the most important verses in the New Testament for me is the verse in James 1 about religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. It is to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's this idea in the purity of religion for James that is um, care for others and keeping oneself holy, preserving one's, one's life. And one of the beauties of gathering together as the people of God is that it is to be a gathering where we lift up what it means to live together differently than the world. It's not just a celebration of cultural maxims, but to your, to your point about not being, not being a discordant with our lives, what's beautiful about worship is that it is the moment, however, where we kind of have the opportunity to be confessional and realize, oh yeah, over these last seven days, there have been moments when my life is discordant with that which I confess. And really, this is one of the powerful things of more liturgical worship, particularly in America, Catholicism, and I know Lutherans also, some Presbyterians, there are other movements, but that- Episcopalian. That, very, that, yeah. con, that confess. Yeah. That, that confess. A very important part of the liturgy is confession. Um, and I would say it's been very lacking in our tribe specifically, but probably most often in the Protestant understanding of that worship gathering, um, service, whatever word you want to use, is con communal confession is not something I felt like that we have done well as far as the, the churches that I've been a part of. When I was, I don't want to throw everybody under well, no, the bus, but no, I think you're right. So when I was just taking Latin a couple of years ago for my program, and we were given this phrase to translate "mea culpa, mea culpa." Uh, I think that there's an, um, a superlative word there, and then "mea culpa" again. I, I forget the phrase because I'm not I'm not Catholic. Well, what was interesting? All my um, the other members of the cohort, they're all Catholic, and they, you know, they all translate it very quickly. And they said, "Well, this is a part of the mass. My fault. My fault." my great fault and i said this is this is something you do you say this regularly in worship it's like well yeah this is like one of those quintessential lines like the recognition of you know the fault and responsibility how i've sinned yeah. and it was just kind of mind-blowing to me i'm like we're kind of you know i hate to confess this but in evangelicalism we used to usually spend our time pointing fingers at other people's faults. <laughs> we don't usually stand around saying, mea culpa, mea culpa, you know, like, my fault, my fault. Oops, you know, and which is, I mean, that's a, that's a powerful confession for the people of God to gather together, you know, and say, say this, they recognize the responsibility of the gravity of their sins. This really ought to be an, an essential part of, of all Christian worship, you know, because when we when we gather together, what we are doing is we are we are recognizing the, the possibility of what could be in a community that is centered around holiness in spite of what has come to be, you know, and it's it's an opportunity when we gather together every week to reimagine what the world could be because of Christ's proclamation that the kingdom of God is here and now, you know? 
it brings up a couple of images in my mind that as we are, that as you were talking, one was the parable or the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke, where the Pharisee was like thanking God he wasn't like this person, this person, when you were mm. talking about this comparison, yeah. or we always want to point the finger. But the tax collector stood off in a distance, not even in front of people, and just um, his prayer was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, and, and I think that, so it makes me ask the question, why do you think in the Protestant churches this understanding of confession is so lacking. And I, I, like I said, I grew up Nazarene and I, I tend to be most critical of my own tribe because I, I feel like I'm a part of it. And I have the, I've, I've earned my stripes to be able to say things about it. I feel like I understand maybe why Nazarenes tend to not be as confessional because, because of, because of the sense of kind of holiness, absolutely and perfection that, yeah, that with yeah. it, that, to admit it would, would 60s, be... 70s, 80s or whatever, to admit that I am sinful would, for I, I think, um, incorrectly assume that I'm not holy. Yeah, yeah. But they made that correlation right. because a lot of people took Wesley and that idea of him saying he was perfect as not even capable of sinning, not even having yeah. the capability of doing that. Yeah. So I, that's why I think Nazarenes, but it's just interesting because I don't think in... And maybe I would say in some reformed churches, they would say it doesn't matter because your sins are covered. You don't need to confess. You did that when you said this sinner's prayer or this whatever. You're good. We don't need to confess in church because we did that. I don't know. I could be totally wrong. But I'm just trying to think about the different theological streams about why confession seems to be lacking. So I I don't know completely Protestant, Protestant overall. But I, I would say in evangelicalism, particularly, I would say coming out of the early 20th century, the dis, when when evangelicalism started to focus on the on fundamentalism. So those guys in the early 20th century, they disseminated the uh, is that the right word? They they the distributed or yeah, yeah the yeah, pamphlets yeah, yeah. of the fundamentals. There's are these these things that we hardcore believe. There became this emphasis on we are right in our belief. So prior to that, evangelicalism was really about social social movements. So it was about women's suffrage. It was about the abolishment of slavery. It was about caring for, for the poor and establishment of hospitals and this type of thing, right? Well, then at the early 20th century, there's a turn in evangelicalism toward dogmatic truth. The Bible is the way the Bible was written. And if King James was good enough for Paul, it was good enough. It is good enough for me. I mean, these are the things that people in evangelicalism have said. You know what I'm saying? But there was a turn. I really do think that seriously, historically, I think that if you look, if you look back, this might not be far off that the, the emphasis, when the emphasis turns from action in the world to theological stance you know on dogma and doctrine you're becomes less less of a confessional attitude you know it becomes not only does it become less about what i do so why would i even confess because we don't we're not really focusing on what i do but we're also focused on being right hmm. and in being right there's not room for so i think there's it's kind of a double-edged sword in that turn in the early 20th century um maybe toward you know, a stance of belief. Furthermore, so then as it pertains to worship. So what does worship become then 
throughout evangelicalism, but it becomes more of a time to reinforce beliefs yeah. than a time to actually worship God in a sense of where we we expect God to speak and we sit and we listen and we receive, but it becomes more indoctrination. It becomes more, you know, uh, and, and this is kind of the, the fundamentalist Bible thumping preaching that we see throughout, throughout evangelicalism. And I mean, as a professor and someone who is concerned with raising up a generation of worship leaders and pastors, what I see so often is pastors who see their job as to preach and then other people do the kind of other things that aren't really significant in the worship service because the most important thing is when you know the individual who's preaching gets up and tells everybody what the truth is when worship as we find in acts 2 is this you know the believers being together and having everything in common they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the breaking of bread and to prayer the idea of of breaking bread together, of fellowship, and of prayer, of the community responding, the call and response to God, I think those those elements are elements that we have lost as we have moved in a direction of dogmatic preaching as kind of the emphasis of worship and evangelicalism. So I think it's interesting because I think you hit on something that I think... Um even the way we set up our sanctuaries. So it used to be that the pulpit was over to the side because the center of the thing that we were driving to was the table. So that was in the center of this is the very platform. interesting. You're right about this. And if you if you want to know if Jeremy's right, go on a trip to like Boston or like one of these old old places on the East Coast where the churches were built pre 20th century and all of the lecterns are on the side. It's and the still, table yeah, is in the right, middle right, because yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it was an image of saying, this is what we're driving towards, not the sermon. And then we shifted to move the pulpit to the middle. And in, yeah, post, post, um, uh, the great awakenings, kind of the new, what, what are we using? What are we using sanctuaries for? And no, I think I've never considered this idea, this idea of the architecture, the architecture kind of historically telling the story of the Absolutely. priority of American worship. Yeah. What's central, the table or the sermon. And so now, so that the turn, the pulpits moved to the center and we either put the communion table in the back of the stage or down front and, you know, but the pulpit, the, the, the spoken word became the central thing. That's what we're driving towards. That's what we're gearing towards. Everything supports that rather than the table, which is very confessional. I think like it's hard to come to the Lord. When we say the table, we mean Eucharist communion, the Lord's supper, um, whatever, however, whatever you call it. Um, but I think that aesthetically they were saying something and we also are saying something potentially aesthetically by, by how it is all set up. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think that you just brought up another good point about architecture in the current situation. So as large evangelical churches have been building sanctuaries, they're, they're building theaters. You just use the word stage. Yeah. I don't know that anyone in the 18th or 19th century in America when they were building 
sanctuaries. I don't think they were using the word stage. Do you know what they call it? Because I get this all the time from our funeral director in town is when he comes to our church for a funeral, he always refers to the front as the altar. And if you go to like Catholic or more traditional churches, the front is referred to as as the altar which I think is just interesting also. It's all a part of the altar, huh? Yeah, it's it's because that's where we come to receive the Lord's Supper. Wow. And so he always says, hey, when I bring the body, body to the altar, and I'm like, dude, that's not, you know. It's, but it's just interesting well, in, that, he, and he's an older guy, so it's probably part in even, of... In evangelicalism, what, what has happened is we have turned worship into such a production, and our worshipers... The people that come there are passive receivers of this performance that happens on a stage. Yeah. And so Shakespeare's drama has kind of become we we as worship leaders have become performers for a passive audience. Mm-hmm. And and it's reinforced by our architecture, you know. Um I think I think that's a very significant point. Well so so we're talking about worship today, kind of just a, a hodgepodge of thoughts and, you know, different things that Jeremy and I think about as we're, that, you know, as we are, this is something that we, we do every week. I think my question to you would be, Jeremy, what what is a way in which for you, as you gather people to worship every week, what would be something that you hope to have as a part of your worship that is countercultural or is different than the world. Do you ever think about that? Like what is when you are gathering people together, this is kind of the shepherding fo- the the shepherding element of you as the worship leader in your community. Can I say one more thing about confession? Yeah, do it. And do it might it. lead into this, but okay. I th- it's a question, another question I have. Has our lack of confession in our worship gathering led to where we are politically in our country that when the church stopped this idea of confession and being humble and understanding that I may not always be right, but I am a human being has that potentially led to a place where in our politic, we are at each other and we can excuse, um, people and say, well, they're not my pastor in chief. They're my president. And yet sometimes we have more concern about how people live or what that looks like. But is our lack of being a confessing body promoted evangelicalism, um, this, this voting block, has it, has that potentially been a piece or a key that led to where we are in our country or where we are in evangelicals or, you know, as a voting block has so, the lack of, con- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, no, I'm, no, I'm so talking we've not, in we've not talked about this. We've not talked about this since, since we last met, I read a book called the book of Jerry Falwell. Oh, and the argument of this book is what you're saying right now in the book of Jerry Falwell. The author talks about, I'm, I'm trying to find the author. I can't find it on my bookshelf. Uh, the, the author makes the case that Falwell was um, that fundamentalists were um, innovative in this process called mimesis, which is a process of kind of re-narrating information. And essentially what happened in evangelical worship is that the the gospel has essentially become re-narrated through powerful, manipulative communicators. And that's actually what people expect when they come to church now is to receive. A, and so they're, they're recipients of a particular particular so, socio-political brand over against any gospel. 
And the book is, you know, uh, agree with it or don't agree with it. It's actually a very, very compelling sociological piece. And it's one that I, I, I think was, was very brilliantly done. But that's, that's the case in the book. So you know? I, yeah, so it just maybe get me thinking like is where we are when the political world and the news media talk about evangelicals and the positions that we have and the things that we sometimes sweep under the rug, which I feel like is a lot has been happening recently. Um, did it, it's a piece of it because we stopped being confessional with each other in mm. our gathering mm. and it produced this. We know what's right. We understand. You can't tell me I'm wrong. And, and I think, yeah, man, I think Trump is a symptom. I don't think he's the problem. I think he was a, a, an, an overflow of us as a, as a body of believers ceasing to be conventional one with another. I don't know. It's a question. I also want to say just, and maybe this is the last time we ever utter this name on this podcast. Trump is not and never was an evangelical. Okay. Yeah. Just just right. saying it. You heard it here, folks, on the evangelicals. So with that in mind, thanks for not answering my question. But um <laughs> I would I would I completely Yes, my answer is yes. Emphatically yes. I think that that's it's totally it's all tied up uh, in that turn. I think it's. I think you br make a brilliant point, and I. Yeah. Sorry, I did not answer the question directly. Yes. <laughs> wow. Do uh, <laughs> I need to be more emphatic? So, which I think leads to your question. So, of what, what do you we do? try to do? What do you do? What do you do? How? How do? What's priority in worship, Jeremy? Um. So I think that that for us at Pauline Nazarene, um, and when I am trying to put it together, I th I really want for us the biblical text to speak more than anything else mm. and so i'm not knocking your church if they do this but we don't do series we go yeah. through books of the bible because i want the bible i want to start with the text and what the text is saying and then try to figure out how to teach that text so it's just a good discipline for me to not just say what i want but actually try to preach what the text is actually trying to say and so i think for me um, what is the Bible really getting at is a, is a helpful tool and not what I want it to. And I'm not saying pastors manipulate, you know, like I said, I, I feel like I have to be careful to well, clarify well, yeah, what I'm saying. The, the, the lectionary people that are not represented right now, they would be like, you're choosing your Bible. We use the lectionary. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we really let the Bible speak for itself. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but we go through books ways. and we don't skip any story. I mean, we are There like, are different ways to kind of get at absolute, this end of trying absolute. to let the and scripture so speak. Let the yeah. scripture be what the scripture is and say what it says and not anyways. And so then uh, also we try to, um, probably don't always succeed but get away from or if the bible speaks about political things then let's get after it and 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 not and understand that jesus is neither one or the other and if we're going to be a follower of jesus so i think that's part of that prophetic understanding of what scripture is doing and when we really hear some of this stuff we have to understand that that when we make Jesus one or the other, then we are um, we are not being truthful to who Jesus was and who he came to be. And so I think that part of what that means as well, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on a little rant here, is I think that for too long we focused 
we got to expand our atonement theology, I think, on some level. Like we have to understand that that it isn't just the cross that we we focus on, but it's the life that Jesus lived and who he called us to be and what that looks like. And so that Jesus died for the world, that Jesus died for creation, that Jesus died to redeem all of it. Um, and not just me and America, but literally all people. And so I think that helps us try to re-narrate you what, or, or go back to that what the good news is, is that if I'm preaching, I should be able to preach what I preach like in Ethiopia and China and Sudan and it would still be good news for those people as well. So you're saying if the gospel is not gospel there, it might not be gospel. I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. and so I think that, that just trying to stay true to, to what that is now, you know, it's just interesting because I'm just trying to think of what it would look like if I started doing um, a confessional prayer together, like how would that be received? And, and I, but I think it's something that, that even as I've thought about it before and, and, we, you know, we've read um, Wesley's Covenant Prayer together, which is pretty, pretty biting and pretty difficult if you really un, like read through it. I yeah. mean, it's got lines like, "If you want me to have a lot or nothing, if you wanna, if you want everybody to know who I am or nobody to know who I am, if you want to use me or get rid of me, you know, like it's just got this like, my life is not my own, but it's yours." And and so I think that any way we can push people to understand that and um, and just doing doing our best to to speak a prophetic a hopeful and encouraging word that isn't built on where we are where we find ourselves or what political ideology we have but is based on jesus and scripture and who he is um sometimes you know we probably do better than others but the hope is that we're just pointing people to jesus and 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 trying to be like him and and, you know, our mission statement's pretty simple. We stole it from Jesus, like love God and love others. Like we just, that's, that's the goal. I think if we can get people just to do that, um, and to figure out what that looks like, uh, then that's the goal potentially. What about you guys? What? So, yeah, I've, I've really, so, so, so Jeremy and I are, are, are different in the sense that Jeremy is a senior pastor in the sense that he really is. I mean, he's, he's kind of, his responsibility is all of it. You know, he sees it all. And I'm, I'm a worship pastor on a, on the staff of a, of a larger church, which historically has been very production minded. Sure. And so even in coming here, you know, to Lima community, trying to figure out when, when I first came to this assignment, uh, there was, you know, a couple of people that every week were doing this really big kind of rock and roll production. And it didn't feel to me like there was a lot of congregational participation. Now, people would argue about that. But when I came and sat in a worship services kind of on the front end of coming here, it felt like people were very passive. And one of the things that I feel is really important in worship as I read Acts 2, the idea of coming together and having everything in common, is I think that it's important for a, a people who come together in Jesus's name to have their own voice. And so what I'm always trying to ask is how are we, how am I not just kind of yelling at you or telling you what to do or singing at you or, but how, how can people have a voice? Right? So I, for me, choir is really important. I, I, um, if we're going to sing, if we're going to sing songs together in worship, I want them to be songs that are representative of kind of the existential situation of the congregation, which that also means for me, um, 
I love hymns. I love because because hymns are a part of the faith memory of elderly people in the church, right? And faith is something coming to worship is is some is is a monumental event every week that is life that could that could and should be life altering. So I, I think it's something that in order for I feel like evangelical worship has become very awkward mm-hmm. because it's become so performance driven. And I want it to be I want I want worship to be personal and so to have a hospitable kind of connection with with people. So that's just kind of like on the outside. But for me, you kind of lifted up scripture as like, hey, I want scripture to speak. Um and I would say I want I want people to to hear to hear Jesus speak, to feel to feel the Holy Spirit speak in a way that maybe is beyond that which I can manipulate. And so for me, prayer time tends to be the the focus of any worship service that I that I plan. And leading into prayer time, you know, there there's often scripture is used to lead it into prayer time, like whatever the prescribed lectionary text would be for the day, whether it is a psalm or a prophet, even a New Testament text leading into prayer. Prayer time is really important. We we every week invite people to come down to the altar to pray and just allow for space and time to just come and pray. And I, I often remind our people that as we gather together, we gather in the name of Jesus. And he, he promised us that where two or more gather in his name, there he was with them. Yeah. And as we gather as the people of God, Jesus is among us. Mm. And Jesus exhorted Mary when talking with Mary and Martha that Mary chose the better by just choosing to be with him. And that in worship, it's okay to just be with Jesus. Yeah. You know, because Jesus Jesus can and does change our lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Where do I come to Jesus? I come to Jesus when I come to the gathered people of God. That's yeah. where I come to Jesus, you know? Not that Jesus doesn't show up other places throughout the week, uh, but he does come specially. I, I do have people... There are, there are people that have had conversations with me that will ask me the question, you know, what's even the, the point of worship? Yeah. What's different about worship? Yeah. Why do you even need to do it? Yeah. You know, because you do look at a lot of the different elements of Christianity that you can do or perform anytime, any place. But historically, the people of God have said, this is the time that we come together to meet with Jesus. I, I think to myself often, um, you know, in your family reunion, or your, you know, many for many families, Thanksgiving is very important. Everybody gets together at Thanksgiving, and I, you know, I ask the question: Why don't you do? Why don't you do uh, Thanksgiving in September? Well, that's a dumb question. It's like, well, well <laughs> like, if you if you can see if you can see that so clearly, in my opinion, as a Christian, you should see so clearly why Sunday morning uh. is so is so clearly an an important um, community event. Jesus. One of the most important things that I think Jesus said in the New Testament was, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He said that. He legitimately said that. He said, I've not come to throw the I've not come to throw out the system. Red letters. Yes. Even in King James. Yes. That's right. <laughs> I've not come to abolish these things. I've come to fulfill them. And the early church meeting on Sunday, they they shifted away from the Sabbath in the sense that there was confusion about Sabbath adherence and even paul talks about kind of the tensions with sabbath adherence 
but also even wanting even Jews to be able to observe the Sabbath, but also come together and worship in a way that it wasn't conflictual and we weren't worried about whether or not we were working or not or transgressing the Sabbath, but also because the because Sunday was the day that Jesus, that the Lord was resurrected, right? It, it, but, but the move to Sunday... You know, and we have, obviously, we have divisions and uh, we have Seventh-day Adventists, right? Because they, you know, are convinced that the right time to worship is, is Saturday. Sure. The point of the podcast today is not to have an argument about whether or not, you know, Sunday is the right day to worship. But I would say... Because you guys also have a Saturday night. We did. Oh, you don't We anymore. previously did. Okay. Yeah, we, we have, uh, uh, since the uh, COVID-19 upsetting of the schedule, we've moved that evening... Sur- we have all of our worship services now on Sunday, oh, just cool. on, on one day. But... Uh, the 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 point the point is, uh, you you had asked the question. You know, what's the thing that I lift up? Is the is the time of meeting with Jesus? Yeah. Worship is a time of of convening with the risen Christ. Yeah. Christ is in our gathering. So whether or not there's some awesome music element, whether or not uh, we read the passage of scripture that speaks really powerfully to you, whether or not the sermon is awesome. Whether or not even on a on a week, and this is controversial to some, I realize I realize for those of you out there that are high Eucharist people, this is gonna be offensive. Whether or not the cup, the cup or the bread actually touch our lips, you know, we meet with Jesus. And I realize there are some people that would say, unless the cup and the bread touch your lips, you're not meeting with Jesus. Sure. So don't fake that you are. <laughs> you know. Um but but for me the the, the worship is about meeting with the risen Christ and allowing Christ as a community to reorient our lives. And I and that does make some people anxious because I don't know that we think about worship as that. I really do think in evangelicalism we think of worship as a performance or we think of it as kind of, you know, receiving some sort of doctrine or direction that is pre-planned and premeditated. Can I get, break it down to even just a couple more practical, like break it simple, down. like the next level down? Um I think there's just something, so I think it, it maybe does two things as well. I think there's just something physically powerful about just singing with other people. I think it does a couple of things. It's amazing. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, I think I've, I've said it before, but like when I go to a ball game and we sing, take me out to the ball game and you have 40,000 people all doing the same thing at the same time. It's, it's amazing. It's a powerful it's moving amazing. thing. It's yeah, so it's dumb amazing, and man. silly, but it's powerful. It's not, it's amazing. It's a, music's the language of God. So I think it does a couple things. One it's, and I just talked about this with a guy that listens to the podcast, a buddy of mine who for different reason, hasn't been able to gather kiss consistently with us. And he's like, I'm just missing something. I was like, well, there's a couple things. I think one when I hear other people singing, it allows me to realize I'm not by myself. Well, yeah. So one thing we try to do, you ask what we do, is I always try to have at least one song or chorus where there's very minimal instrumentation. Oh, that's great. So that we can hear each other. That that's an important element that we can hear our brothers and sisters. Because sometimes if yes. it's loud, you can't hear the yes. person next to you. And yes. we think it's vital because it reminds me that that one, that person's struggling, but they're here and God's with them because we are also in this together. And the second thing too is, is if we can do this together, if we can get however many people all singing at the same time, what would happen if we put that same energy into reaching the community? If we all got involved in the same thing and same heart and same mind, 
like if we can do this together and it's this powerful moment, mm. what if we unified in such a way that we were putting that effort into the rest of the days of the week? Um, and, and, and like I said, I don't want to get, you think I'm new agey, but I think there's something about breathing. Like when you're singing, you're usually breathing at the same, you know, like I think there's something collective happening in our midst that's very practical that uh, one shows me I'm not alone and I'm not the only one struggling and I'm not the only one going through a difficult time, but I have my brothers and sisters who are in this with me, which I would say that's Jesus being present amongst the believers. And two, if we can do this together, what force could we be for the kingdom in the world if we were all to unify behind this common vision, common goal, unify behind this common understanding of who we were to be every other day of the week? Yeah. Um, I mean, just thinking about thinking about you, you said, you know, practical things, the, the things, you know, at a practical level. I, I think about the things that COVID has kept us from doing for the sake of, you know, not spreading disease. I, I do think that in worship, it is important, the community things that we do to remind each other of the fact that we're together. So listening to each other, hearing each other's voices. Um, we used to pass the peace, mm. you know, shake hands, mm -hmm. greet each other. And most churches have done away with that. We need to bring it back. We're going to need to bring it back. At some point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm that's what I'm saying. Like we've it, talked like, about when that's going to like what yeah, that looks like for us. Yeah. And Understanding I, that not everybody's at the same place. No, as and I'm far not as I'm look. not suggesting today. I'm not saying like I'm not I'm not saying today, but I but I do think that there's something significantly lost when you're losing physical contact with yep. people. Yep. And and that's not biblical. It's not you know, I mean, maybe it is. I I'm not like trying to make this strong, you know, dogmatic stance here. I, I just am saying that in in worship it, we have turned it in COVID culture. We've turned it into, you know, this is something that you view. This is something that you consume. And worship is not about consumption. Worship is about being consumed. Hmm. It's opposite. Worship is about um, coming, coming and participating, losing oneself in the in the eternal mystery in the divine unity of the people of God. That's what worship is about. Yeah. And I'm I'm very anxious just uh, about, I mean, about a lot of things these days, but I've grown more anxious in my role as a worship leader because I do feel like in some senses we have, uh, as as leaders, been so worried about taking care of people online or who aren't there, you know, that we've lost the, the focus on like the fact that Christ is among the people that are gathered. Right. And that's partly the way that we had programmed ourselves over the last, you know, year and a half or however long this has been going on. I wonder if, um, if because also Sunday, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking if, if because Sunday has become a spectator, event rather than a participatory event it's led to well i don't need to be discipled and i don't need to grow and i spectate throughout the week as well because that's what my um what happens on a sunday and there's not 
that formational piece isn't happening when we get together as the people of God. Therefore, um, I'll just live my life the rest of the week and then I'll come back and spectate again and I'll live my life and come back. And it's potentially um, an unintended consequence has been a shallow people who, mm. who, yeah. um, who live the rest of the week the way they want to and not the way Christ may potentially be calling them to. So, Honestly, maybe maybe a good way to wrap up the episode today would be a, a charge a charge for worship. I'm it's probably not far off that some of you listening to this podcast because of COVID have used this opportunity to spend your Sunday mornings at the lake or I don't know, or on Facebook watching rather yeah. than gathered. Yeah. And and I've heard from a lot of people who watched and then were present again and they say being present is so different. Oh yeah. And and it's like, yeah, of course. Like, not to say that we weren't thankful for being able to do it online, but there's something about being in the space. Go back to church, folks. Yeah. Go be go be with your people. Wear your mask. Yeah, that's you know, what do, you do, need do to do. Your, do your yeah. thing. Yeah. But go back to, go back to church. You know, yeah. be a part of. You need you need community. You need to be connected with Christ in a, in a physical communal type of way more than you realize Yeah. that I, I need that. That's something that I have found out. That is my revelation, right? I need this. We need this. Yeah. God, we were created for it. We were, we were created for it and God lives in community. So why wouldn't we do the same? The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.